Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. My guest today is Michael Top Washington, retired Marine Corps Master Sergeant and firefighter, now serving as a mental health therapist dedicated to serving veterans and first responders. Master Sergeant Washington served in conflict zones across the globe, from Bosnia to Iraq and Afghanistan. He lost his son, Mike Washington Jr., a fellow Marine in Afghanistan in 2008. Yeah, it's interesting to think about what, you know, my military lineage, if you will. My father was was in the Marine Corps uh, at the end of Korea. So I think in the Marine Corps, there's always, there's that pull, there's that family history. And I guess maybe all services, all branches, you know, have that pull. And certainly there was, there was that for me. And uh, I just always knew I was going to go into the Marine Corps. And uh, much to the chagrin of my dad, who you know, wanted me to go to college. Like all, all good parents, they, they want you to go to college. And uh, I had the grades and I played football and I was in the ROTC. And, uh, but I wanted to be a Marine first and, and do that. So I enlisted in September of 1980 and left for boot camp uh, two days after high school in June of 1981. The funny thing is, you know, I was just all, all set and gung-ho for some kind of combat arms thing, infantry, something, you know, and uh I went in open contract, which means they, they're going to put you where the Marine Corps needs you. And so I ended up as a pay clerk. And I didn't even know the Marine Corps had pay clerks. I was just like, I hadn't, I just never gave it any thought. You know, I was a, I was a dispersing clerk. And man, was I disappointed. I, I just had no idea that I was going to be sitting behind a desk. And, and I did that for my, my entire seven years of uh, straight active duty. And where I think about paying penance and, to something that was that was my time. I did not enjoy my job in the Marine Corps at all. I, met, you know, made good friends and uh, met some really great people, but no satisfaction. And so, towards the end of my second enlistment, uh, I have two kids now, and I'm so unhappy with with being in the Marine Corps that I decided to get out of the Marine Corps and I look for a job that maybe would give me that sense of purpose that I missed in the Marine Corps. And so when I did my list up, the police and fire came up and I went to a class, an introduction to the fire service and the, the gentleman who taught it, Steve Kunkel from Fallbrook Fire Department in Southern California in San Diego County, he sold it to me, man. I said, this is what I've been looking for. So I started working, taking classes, joined their volunteer program. And I got up back to duty and went right into the fire department and just loved it. It was everything that I wanted. You know, it was that, it was uh, the adventure. I was doing that job that people 
you know, talk about, but you know, not many people really want to do it and uh, yeah, make good friends. And uh, it was just awesome. But at the same time, I'm missing that experience in the military. And so Camp Pendleton next door to Fallbrook, they were just starting a brand new light armored vehicle uh, unit there. I've been watching the creation of these vehicles, LAV-25, over the years. And I said, well, let me take a look, you know, and if it's supposed to be, then it's supposed to be. Otherwise, maybe my military career ended as a pay clerk. Then I remember going over there and talking to the Sergeant Major of the unit, and there was about 10 people in the unit at the time. It was brand new. And he was excited. He was like, oh, you come on active duty. Yeah, we need some active duty experience. And um, then he came down to the MOS. He goes, where's your MOS? Now, when I tried to get into recon and a couple other units on active duty, when they hear my MOS, they said, well, that doesn't apply here. So I was really, I didn't really want to tell him, but I saw I was a dispersing clerk. And he was still excited, but he wanted me to be an admin person in the unit. And this was probably the only time in my Marine Corps career that I was able to really just tell the Marine Corps, this is how it's going to be. It's either going to be like this or I'm out. And I told the Sergeant Major, so with all due respect, you know, I want to be in the line unit. I want to be on a vehicle. And uh, if that can't happen, okay. Uh, I appreciate what your, uh, what your needs are, but I'll pass. And I started to walk out. He said, well, hold on a second. Is that it? And I go, yes, Sergeant Major. I'm going to. I'm going to go talk to the Air Force about maybe being a flight medic or something like that, something that's going to connect with my fire department uh, medical stuff. And he goes, all right, we'll give, you a, we'll give you a try. And I ended up with the line unit, and uh, it was everything that I had been looking for in the Marine Corps. And uh, it, was, it was great. Great unit, great bunch of people, and that's who I deployed to Desert Storm with. Um, yeah, so it was interesting. We had just done a two-week uh, training up here in Yakima, Washington. And again, we were at Camp Pendleton. So we just got back from that. And a couple weeks later, uh, Iraq invades Kuwait. And the 82nd heads out. And then the 7th Marines head out. And initially, this was kind of like, ah, this is not going to be anything. Everything will go back to the way it was. But then it just kept unfolding, unfolding, and unfolding. And now reserve units are starting to be called up. And uh, I remember getting kind of excited uh, about that prospect. And, you know, it was just dominating the news and units. We were just feeding people into the, into Saudi Arabia, trying to protect the kingdom. And, and there was something otherworldly about it. You know, when you think about this is your first time going to war where you kind of don't really believe this is happening. And then, other units in in your division are getting called up and you're not called up yet and you're getting anxious and and i'll admit to having that feeling like you know i will get called up in this air quotes i'll miss this uh this war if you will this thing that i've been practicing in my head for my whole life and then we got called up and uh then it's like oh this is real this is really happening and saying goodbye to my family and uh and our unit of uh, light armored infantry is that uh, we're reconnaissance and screening forces for the main Marine force. That is to say that we're at the forward edge of the battle area. We do raids across the borders. When they attack, we try to slow them down while the other forces come to play. So we're at the pointy end of the spear. And I'm not saying that you know, we're not SEALs, we're not force recon, we're not, we're regular Marine Corps, you know, 
you know, infantry on wheels. And uh, at the time, they we were light armored infantry, which the infantry guys will call lazy ass infantry. But you know, riding is better than walking any day. But there was not that you know big elite status. We were just regular guys out there. And I remember going to Camp Lejeune and watching all these units starting to pour in, all these reserve units. We had a formation uh, one day when the commandant came out to talk to us, uh, General Gray. And it was 24,000 Marines in this formation. It was unbelievable. You're watching units pour in and pour in. And we didn't have our vehicles yet because they were on board ship. And so they were talking about us being, you know, line infantry. And at some point when we were out in the desert at the uh, the firing range Marine Corps had set up, they said our, our ship literally came in. And that's where we were when the air war started. And, uh, the port that we were at uh, had some scud impacts, and it wasn't until later, um, reading the General's War and uh, Atkinson's book uh, about Desert Storm, that I really understood what was going on. Otherwise, I, I knew what was going on about 10, 20 feet around me, for sure. Uh, everything else was speculation. But that kind of said, okay, this is really happening. Those were scuds that we heard impact in the area. That was and Patriots going off in the other direction. All right, we're at war. We got our vehicles and we headed north and it was just some, uh, just a sight to see just how much hardware was moving forward. It was just a never ending stream of tanks, LEDs, trucks, Bradleys, helicopters flying forward. It was amazing. It was amazing to see just what this country can accomplish in a short time when when motivated to do so. And at some point we broke off and we were at the, uh, on the border with uh, uh, Kuwait and Saudi Arabia. So now the people in front of us are bad guys and whoever's behind us hopefully are good guys. But it was a very porous uh, screen line because I think our company of a dozen vehicles was covering about 17 miles of screen line of uh, footage out there. And so our job was to was to be that tripwire for when they came across, and which they eventually did at Kopji, uh, and then send our people across the line, escort different units that are going to go out and do some deeper reconnaissance. And then the other part, too, was to report back on who was in front of us and what we were going to do about it. And uh, at some point, we got word that there was going to be a B-52 strike right there in front of our position, and they told us to pull back. We heard that later because we didn't pull back. And we dug into where we were at, and they said, you know, button up in your vehicles and just hold on to your helmets. Well, unfortunately uh, for us, we were gonna we were gonna miss the show, and, uh, and so we got all the all the good food that we had been squirreling away in the vehicles, and we were sitting on top of the LAV like it was a drive-in movie. And eighteen hundred came around when the when the airstrike was supposed to hit, and nothing nothing had happened. And we were, you know, we're cursing the Air Force. We're like, ah. Oh, probably uh, in, in England right now having drinks, you know, they couldn't be bothered to do this. Now I remember one of my scouts looked up and he says, Hey, I, I, I can see some planes up there and you could just barely see them. I mean, they were, they, they were so high and so small. If it wasn't just crystal clear out that particular day and the oil smoke wasn't blowing our direction, you wouldn't have been able to see them. And almost as soon as he saw, you know, Hey, there's the planes, the bomb started to impact. And I'm not exactly sure what this three-plane cell was carrying, but I know the B-52s could carry 108 bombs apiece. 
So that's 324, five or 750 pound bombs that they were carrying. And it just didn't seem to stop. It was just like a waterfall of, and you could feel the, the heat, you could feel the, the concussion, you could feel it in your chest. They weren't danger close, but we were closer than what we should have been. And again, it was just an amazing sight. And later when we went into that position, we found a couple of vehicles, but we couldn't tell what they were. Um, so I don't know if they actually hit some people or whoever was shooting shooting at us from that position, got word and saw a leaflet that said, if you don't leave right now, you're going to get bombed. Um, so that was the B-52 strike. And, uh, and we had a, a number of uh, uh, incidences where A-10s and Harriers were were helping us out for close air support. And that was amazing as well. Our big thing was just not to be mistaken for Iraqi and, and get shot up by our own guys. So we were successful in that. Initially, our unit had moved forward into Kuwait before the actual ground war had started because of our reconnaissance nature. But yeah, later on, we moved into Kuwait City and, and you know, people were delirious. They were just so happy to see us and uh, gun shooting in the air. And, uh, you know, probably the the biggest thing, the most impactful thing that happened to me was we were at a street corner. It was like a big party, like a, a huge block party, but on on the, the size of a city having a party. This older man walked up to me through the crowd. I mean, it was almost like he had a beeline towards me. And he just shook my hand and looked me in the eyes and said, thank you. And then he walked off. And uh, for me and my subsequent deployments, I felt like that was the reason why I spent six months away from my family and, you know, possibly have Gulf War syndrome now and have, you know, various issues that I carried was, was for that, you know, for that man right there. I don't know who he was. I don't know anything about him, nothing about him, but there was an earnestness. There was a, a human connection, if you will, that we had with that handshake and that thank you. There was no, there was nothing ostentatious about it. It was just one human to another. Thank you for what you did. Because yes, that, that was a brutal op- occupation. Um, there was a, a police station. I think it was a police station uh, that you could see the cells that they were keeping Kuwaiti resistance fighters in. And uh, there was another building that we went into that you could see blood on the walls. And uh, between that and the and the stories from the citizens, you, you got a, a pretty good impression of what that occupation was like. After Desert Storm, I, I went into the counterintelligence business. And uh, the unit that I, I worked with in Bosnia was called the Allied Military Intelligence Brigade. That was the overarching uh, title of the big group. And then I was with a smaller group there working at, in Tuzla, uh, Multinational Division North, where the Army base at Tuzla was. Our unit was was uh, originally put, and when I say unit, it was a very small group. There was it was a, a multinational group, had a house outside in the city. This area here, and this is right before I got there, I wasn't involved in this, but uh, some Serb nationalists had come in and attacked that house. So right before I got there, we were we were put behind the wire at, at the. Uh, uh, Eagle Base in Tuzla, former Yugoslav Air Base. And then we'd go out into the countryside and work and try to run down these these separatist groups. And 
who were doing their best. They were still still attacking Muslims that were trying to relocate back to their villages after the ethnic cleansing. And then there was also other groups that were openly fighting and uh, doing their best to turn over the Dayton Peace Accords. And it was it was an interesting deployment in that you got to see just how brutal these groups of people who were living next door to each other can be. And you think to yourself, well, that can't happen in America. Well, I, I saw it in Bosnia where suddenly people were categorized as being different and somebody that you went to high school with, somebody you played soccer with, suddenly is standing guard over you at a, in a concentration camp. And, uh, and that happened. That was for real. And so that can happen here if we're not careful. But again, um, my work was of a counterintelligence uh, nature. And my big human-to-human contact takeaway was in a town called Shrebenisa, where in 1995, anywhere from 10 to 15,000 Muslim men and boys were taken out into a forest near town and, and massacred by the Serbs. And for the populace that survived, there's a very real feeling that that was going to happen again as soon as we left. And I remember talking to a, a teenage girl. I was actually sharing an MRE that I happened to have. And she talked about her fears, you know, about what it was like for her. You know, she was younger and this was happening and how the war was. And and she looked at me and just like that, that man in uh, Kuwait City, she just looked at me and said, thank you for being here. You know, thank you for being here because I showed her pictures of my family. And again, it was a human to human moment. And we can talk all day about oil. We can talk all day about various things. But, you know, at some point when you're that soldier, sailor, airman, marine on the ground working with people, it becomes a human thing. And you're going to run into bad people. That's a a fact. But you're also going to run into people that, oh, I'm here for this person. I'm trying to help this person right here. And that's how I felt with this young lady. Her thank you meant, meant everything to me. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creo so, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast. That was an interesting tour. You know, 9-11 happens and I had a number of uh, units that that needed counterintelligence people. So they were calling me off the hook and uh, I got a call from the unit that owned me, Marine Forces Pacific in Hawaii. And they said, okay, so we need you to go to Tampa and then we need you to, then you're gonna go forward. 
and forward was kind of uh, nebulous. So I'm like, okay, good. I just need orders. I remember getting to Tampa. And so if you've ever been to McDill, you know, there's only really one way to get on that base or a couple ways. And I remember showing up and man, it, it was a hard base to get onto. There was airmen with machine guns and, you know, looking like everybody who's walking up on this base. Cause this is, you know, not even 30 days after, uh, after nine 11. Um, so everything was a threat, including, you know, a guy walking up in civilian clothes and, but I, here's my orders. And, uh, it took a while for them to let me on base. And no, that's, that's good. I'm, I'm glad it was that, uh, security but nobody nobody knew who i was or where i was supposed to go and uh so it looked like i was going to stay in tampa i was kind of disappointed because if i'm going to get called up it was important to me to 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 go forward and so at some point they got me a, a shared apartment out in town and i was kind of settling into the idea that i was just going to work behind a desk and and then somebody called somebody and there's a, a General Harrell, uh, he was a special ops guy, and he called somebody and said, hey, we're looking for this uh, this Washington guy. <laughs> you know, he's supposed to be in Saudi Arabia right now. And so as quickly as everything happened, it, it pivoted on a, on a point, and uh, the next thing I know, I'm flying into Riyadh, and I'm working for a, a group that was based out of Riyadh. And so this group partly oversaw a lot of operations throughout uh, throughout the Middle East. So my job there, though, was actually to help run operations and, and be the NCOIC of that group in Riyadh. However, there were times when they were looking for a, a counterintelligence person, and, and so I was able to, to, to move forward with that. And like I said, going to Pakistan and you know, working in, uh, in Kabul, uh, doing a, a vulnerability assessment and helping open the American embassy there. Uh, yeah, that's some of the work I did in some of these places. Uh, Yemen, uh, it's probably the first place I worked when I got there. And I was still trying to find the people who uh, attacked the USS Cole. That was the main mission there. And then being back in Saudi Arabia and working with the Saudi government to try and track some of these people down. So there's a number of small missions that, you know, would come up and just say, hey, got a job for you. And you'd go out for a couple of weeks and come back and be the NCOIC, make sure, you know, people are getting letters and writing letters and uh, actually sending emails. It was email time. Desert Storm was letter time. But, uh, yeah, it was a really interesting tour, really interesting. It's a combination of, of accessing uh, information that's out there and they're working with the Saudi Arabian government and their intelligence apparatus and who they know and who's where and things like that. And uh, how porous is the border from Yemen into Saudi Arabia? And, and at that point, we wanted ships to be able to call into that harbor again. So we had to make sure that security was set up to do that. And part of that was making sure that we knew the routes of travel into Yemen from Saudi Arabia and what tribes were out there that would uh, facilitate that crossing of borders and so on and so forth. So it was, it was really interesting work, but you know, there was a fair amount of uh, research, you know, just computer research that had to be done. And if, if, if you will, it was, uh, shoot, what was that movie that, uh, where they, where they got Bin Laden? Zero Dark Thirty, if, if take away the, the seal part of it at the end, but if you look at all the work that had to go on the front end from, from the people who are on computer uh, systems all day long, 
to the people who are working with the uh, Saudi Arabians, to the people who are doing surveillance or doing these things. All that stuff had to happen before the, the pointy end of the spear goes into that building and, and does that. And then, you know, sometimes it's, uh, you know, it's boring. You know, it's just like, okay, I just got to go through this other report and kind of link this report up with that report. It's kind of like police work. Uh, then other times it's that boring surveillance thing or you're sitting in a car or, you know, you're walking around and it's uh, you're waiting for this person who may or may not show. And it's also working in pairs or a very small group as well. Because um, surveillance, you can't do surveillance by yourself. I mean, it, it's just too easy to lose somebody. So you would work in a team, but you could find yourself at a remote end of the of the triangle, if you will. Yeah, so Djibouti... Uh, uh, Ethiopia, uh, went into Eritrea, uh, Sudan. And again, those were just hot places uh, for uh, counterinsurgency operations. And so we have a, a base in Djibouti called uh, Camp Lamanye. Um, and at the time when we were just starting to move back in there, it, it was really just the ruins of, a, of an old French fort. And so we were moving in there and looking to improve it. And that, that was a pretty hot place both literally hot and hot in the in terms of uh, of the terrorism threat and what was going on just over the border. And then our so our job was to to monitor that and and help the the gunslingers go out and do the stuff that they do. And going into Ethiopia and working with those governments. And a lot of it was working with other governments and their people and uh, getting their cooperation. So just like uh, Everywhere else I worked with counterintelligence, there was desk work, there was surveillance work, there was uh, working with, uh, with the governments, and, uh, you know, it was just really, really good, strong work. Djibouti is like France's Okinawa. I guess an army regiment, you know, is there. That's their largest presence outside of, uh, outside of France. And then outside of their base, they have a foreign legion base, which was next door to ours. And... Uh, my thing was just interaction with them about security, about uh, what do they know. Again, that, that interaction with a foreign government, with that foreign entity to try and work with them so we can show up that assistance and that, uh, that connectivity, if you will, that, that we, can, we can work together. I can go to them and find out what, you know, what, what do they know, and they feel comfortable enough to share that with me. So I didn't go out there and, uh, and, and uh, <laughs> do any of that crazy stuff that the the Legion is known for. I, I work with uh, with their intel, their intel people, and their leadership a little bit. It, it's, it's interesting, you know, when you when you sit here in the United States and you hear these various names, and you realize how we feel about this person. And let's use Gaddafi as an example. We know how we feel about him and our history with him, but you don't realize how he's looked and viewed to the outside world to a number of other places. So when you think that he's being invited to a conference, it's like, why would they do that? And then when you kind of listen to them talk, it's kind of like, oh, why wouldn't they do that? He's, he's a player for this country. So it was that education piece. I ran into that with in Bosnia, where there were people that, from the American or the Western view, they're portrayed as this. And they are really those people, but I have to get in tune with what my host country and my allies how they were looking at them. And then that way I was a better able to work with them. I couldn't go to a country who viewed Qaddafi as a good person, as an ally, and, and just start tearing them down. I had to look at him as a neutral entity 
not blowing hot or cold with them one way or another. They already know how the United States feels about Gaddafi. They don't need Mike Washington to pile on. June 14th was probably the culmination of 40 some odd years of uh, pain, trauma, things that that we as a society and, and especially people in uniform, whether it's law enforcement, fire or military, we've been taught and uh, encouraged to just kind of push away, to laugh at, to drink, to deal with the things that we work with. And then, you know, for me, finally, it was that day at the fire station where two Marines uh, pulled up with my son's mom in the back and of uh, their white suburban. And I knew exactly what was getting ready to happen because I had rehearsed this day when he left for Iraq. And then when he left again for Afghanistan, I said, well, you know, what if this day happens? And, and sure enough, it did happen. And it, uh, that quickened, I think my, uh, my challenges and my issues and maybe the collapse of, of the facade that I, uh, that mask that I wore, you know, for so long, like so many of us do. And, uh, you know, it was just a downhill slide, a, a rather quick one from there that led me at some point to a, to standing on a bridge, just waiting to go over, just waiting for that one little urge to push me over. And uh, instead I got a pull back, if you will, a, a presence that pulled me back and a voice that was my son's that said, this doesn't end here, dad. This is, this is, you've got, you've got work to do. And I think about this from time to time, I'm looking directly over my computer screen at a picture of him. And I think he joined for a lot of the same reasons that I did. You know, I, I think it's difficult for a, a young man who has a sister in the army and, you know, a dad who's in the Marines to, to go to college, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm trying to get into his head, head with this. And, uh, so he's like, well, I got to go. I can't sit in the classroom and my, my sister's in the army. I can't do it. But then there's that part too, where he's, you know, that was just the soul that he was. He, he wasn't the, um, you know, the, the big gunslinger, you know, let's go get him, barrel-chested freedom fighter guy. He was a gentle soul. He, he was that kid that his mother and I brought him up to be just that helper, make the world a better place and, you know, small increments, him and his sister. And, uh, and so that was his statement when we were listening to, uh, to the Fallujah fight on NPR. And it was that classic road trip with my son down to California to get some stuff from my dad who had passed away. And when I asked him, I said, you know, I get the feeling that you're not going to college. And he goes, no. And I go, you I get the feeling you're going in the Marine Corps. He says, yes. Very sheepishly, I might add, you know, almost like he was embarrassed to say it or he didn't want to hear me, you know, you know, tell him no, he couldn't or whatever. So I, I had to ask him why. At first I had to tell him that there is, absolutely no push. There's nothing that he needs to do to satisfy me as a man or as a person, as a citizen. He's that guy already. I, I had to make that known to him that I just thought he was a great person, great human, great son. I had no complaints with him or his sister that going in the Marine Corps is not necessary to, for me to go, yeah, there you go. Family lineage just, just doesn't need to happen. Uh, although I, I, I know that was probably a, a bit of a pull as well. But when he told me that he he just knows that there's people out there who need to be protected and being a, a Marine Corps rifleman is is probably the way to, the, to affect that most directly, 
well, I, I, I didn't, I didn't have anything I could come back with. Um, I think I may have mentioned college and said, well, you can be a Marine officer later, you know, go to college first. And, but I, I kind of knew that was the path he was on and that was his main motivation. And, uh, it was a pretty, pretty pure and I, I couldn't fault him. Still didn't want him to go, but, uh, you know, I was proud of what his motivations were. So Afghanistan had become kind of a backwater. You know, we, we took our eye off the ball there and we snatched defeat out of the jaws of victory, I think, and uh, with our focus on Iraq. And um, consequently, when 2-7 went, went to Afghanistan, they were, they were in charge of an operational area that would normally be assigned to at least a division. So for the civilians in, in the audience, that's 800 Marines recovering an area that 15,000 Marines would cover normally if we went by the book. And being a counterinsurgency war, you need a lot of people. You need a lot of eyes on people, not a lot of uh, capability to go and immediately seize upon intelligence of a bomb-making factory or uh, a concentration of uh, insurgents. And we just didn't have it there. It just, it just wasn't there. And so we have these companies that, much like uh, Sebastian Younger's uh, uh, Restrepo, that, you know, that fire base, that fob out in the middle of nowhere where you just have a company of Marines or a company of soldiers out there. And 2-7 were those people just going out every day, being blown up, being shot, being wounded. At the end of their, uh, I believe it was a five and a half month tour, 20, 20 Marines had been killed and uh, 125 were wounded. I don't know, maybe 150 were wounded to varying degrees, including a lot of amputations and uh, some just some devastating burns uh, from the IEDs that, that were there. So they paid a price. Uh, they, they paid a big price for for us not paying more attention to what we were sent to Afghanistan to do. When Michael was in Iraq, I'd write his, uh, his, uh, or email. I think I even wrote a couple letters to people in his squad. I just, people need to get mail. You know, there's nothing worse than mail call and, and everybody got a letter except you. And I did that for my guys when I was in Saudi Arabia, I'd write their parents, Hey, your, your kid's doing great, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, it was an extension of that. I wanted them to know that we're okay here. And there's a lot of these guys that I knew personally, because I go to 29 Palms, I go to the 27 Marine Corps ball. And I, I lost not just a son, but I lost nephews in Afghanistan. And I lost nephews after Afghanistan because 27 has lost, I, I don't know what the count is, over 20 to suicide since that 2008 deployment. Um, but I, I needed them to know that we're all right. I needed them to know that I didn't want anybody to go out and get payback. And I, I, I wanted them to go out, do their job, protect each other and come home. That's, I, I just wanted to be encouraging to them. That, that was my goal. And I know as for leaders, as a senior staff NCO, I know these losses weighed heavy on, on them. And so I needed to be there for them in that capacity as well. Because when, if you're going to lose somebody, you can't help but take it personal. Like, what did I do wrong here? Maybe I shouldn't have. Maybe I should have. If I did more of this, less of that. And I, I just need them to know that there's no blame here. There's no blame. This is war. This is what happens. And just get the rest of the Marines home as soon as you can. Do the job and get home. And that was my goal. That was it. My, uh, my ex-wife, uh, 
she did a great job. She, you know, for all the deployments uh, that I went out, you know, she had to fill multiple roles and not watch TV um, because she don't, you know, you don't want to know what the news is going to look like. And then the added burden too is being in the reserves. And so you're living out in the civilian community and, and nobody, you know, this is not a society now that, that understands military service. So while people were very gracious and, and, and rallied around, there's, there's not a lot of people who can say, yeah, I remember when my dad went, or I remember, you know, what it was like. So there, there was that, that piece of isolation that was, that just must've been just terrible to deal with. And, uh, um, you know, like I said, Desert Storm had letters. Uh, I, I was in an office enough time to get emails sent out. And uh, sometimes that wasn't easy either. You know, that instant communication was not the best thing. And uh, so I just can't imagine how, how difficult that would be. I know when my son-in-law, Eric, deployed to Afghanistan, um, I can't remember when that was, uh, I, I felt a small part of it because I wanted to be there for my daughter. And uh, even though I knew he was in a, in a, in a very safe, protected place, uh, I also know how things happen. So I felt a little bit about, of that, but nothing compared to what the, the typical spouse, um, and, and I'm going to say wife because it's almost always a wife, goes through when their husband deploys. It's a burden we can't understand. Me as a Marine and a civilian, you just, you just don't get it. TV can't do it justice. And I don't know, there should be a special uh, TV special where you talk to spouses about what it was like because America needs to understand what that's like because it's, it's huge. Uh, I'm, I'm grateful for my service. I'm grateful for the men and women that I've worked with. Just, just outstanding people. I think that for this country to make that pivot that we need to make, I need more of my veterans to get together and provide a centrist forward operating base, something in the middle, because I'm convinced that we are all just a few points to the left and right lateral limits. You know, most of us are not on either extreme, but we're the silent majority. And maybe it's time for us to stop being silent. Maybe that's what we need because we're hearing a lot of noise from the, uh, the extreme edges. And my experience in Bosnia really makes me think that, you know, it happened there. Yugoslavia was a first-rate country, and then it happened, and it can happen here. That was Master Sergeant Michael Washington. After his military career, Master Sergeant Washington served in the Seattle Fire Department and is now a mental health therapist with a practice focusing on veterans and first responders, helping them work through mental health challenges and pursue post-traumatic growth. To hear him speak more about that, tune into my interview with Mike Washington on our other podcast, Burn the Boats. You can find it wherever you're listening to this episode today. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Dave Douglas is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. Judy. 
Chumba. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.